Good evening and welcome to a Wednesday night edition of Tisky Sour. We are going live as MPs are debating a pretty shoddy plan to raise national insurance to pay for social care, or some of it anyway, to discuss everything that's wrong with this policy. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good. I'd like to wish Bernard Sanders a happy 80th birthday, uh, young and sprightly as ever. But yeah, no, I'm doing really good. <laughs> oh my God, he's eight. My mind is completely blown by that fact. That's incredible. As I said, we're going live as MPs are debating it. There have been some, you know, it kind of reminds me of those, those debates during the Brexit period when you had no idea which way the vote was going to go. This time, it seems pretty certain that, that Boris Johnson is, is going to get this through on this reading. So we're not going to speculate so much about who's going to vote for it, who's going to vote against it. We're going to talk about the substance of the policy. We also have coming up for you, Gavin Williamson's biggest gaffe yet. This is a, it's a racist gaffe. Um, let's go straight on to our first story. MPs are currently debating Boris Johnson's manifesto-breaking plans to hike national insurance by 1.25% to help pay for the costs of social care. The plans, which would cap care costs in England at £86,000, have been promoted by the Prime Minister as a necessary fix to problems which have beset social care funding for decades. Keir Starmer has said the manner of raising the money is unfair and that the plan doesn't fulfil Boris Johnson's promise that no one would have to sell their home to pay for care. The two leaders battled it out today at Prime Minister's Questions. His plan is to impose unfair taxes on working people. My plan is to ensure those with the broadest shoulders pay their fair share. Yeah. I know they don't like that debate. Yeah. The truth is, his plans don't do what he claims. People will still face huge bills. Many homeowners will need to sell their homes. He's yeah. not denying it when he could have done. And the Prime Minister has failed the only test he set for himself for social care. It was in the manifesto. Another manifesto promised, Prime Minister. No good shaking your head. And who's going to pay for the cost of this failure? Working people. Under his plan, under his plan, a landlord renting out dozens of properties won't pay a penny more, but their tenants in work will face tax rises of hundreds of pounds a year. A care worker earning the minimum wage doesn't get a pay rise under this plan, but does get a tax rise. In what world, in what world is that fair? Mr Speaker, actually the Institute for Fiscal Studies uh, has confirmed that this is a broad-based and progressive measure. Uh, the, the top 20% of, of households uh, by income will pay 40 times uh, what the poorest 20% uh, pay. The top 14% pay uh, half of the, the entire levy. Now, Mr. Speaker, he talks about his plan. Well, actually, it turns out I've been scouring the records uh, for evidence of the Labour plan. And I found it, Mr. Speaker, in 2018, the current Shadow Secretary of State uh, for Social Care joined forces with Nick Bowles and Norman Lamb to promote a new dedicated health and social care tax, Mr. Speaker, based on national insurance. Where is she? I can't see her. I can't see her in her place, Mr. Speaker. And she said, she said this was to be, this was to be the country's beverage moment. Well, is the Labour Party really going to vote against the new beverage moment tonight? Mr. Speaker. 
Mr Speaker, let me tell you what an ambitious young member for Henley said in 2002 in this House. What he said in this House, national insurance increases are regressive. I wonder what happened to him. You saw in that exchange lots of claims and counterclaims as to whether or not rises to national insurance are progressive or regressive. Boris Johnson was claiming they are progressive. He'll probably be pointing to statistics such as this. It will be the case that people on the highest incomes will be paying the most towards social care from this new tax. People earning £100,000 will be paying an extra £1,130. That's compared to people on £20,000 a year paying an extra £130. However, that's not what makes a tax progressive. A progressive tax means that the wealthy should pay a higher rate of tax, not a higher total amount of tax. And on those terms, national insurance is as regressive as taxes come. We can make the point by comparing national insurance to income tax. Income tax is progressive. The higher the rate of income, the higher the rate of tax you pay. You get a personal allowance. Anything earned up to £12,570 is not taxed at all. Then anything between that figure and £50,000 is taxed at 20%. Above that, 40%. And then above £150,000, 45%. That's what a progressive tax looks like. National insurance is the complete opposite. For national insurance, above a very low minimum, the more you earn, the lower the rate you pay. These are the rates of national insurance paid by employees in the current tax year. So there you've got that, that tax allowance before. So people um, earning below 9.5k, there's no national insurance for those um, wages. Then up to £50,000, it's 12%. But then once you get over £50,000, suddenly the rate of national insurance plummets to 2%. That's what a regressive tax looks like. Income tax, the more you earn, the higher proportion of your income you end up paying in taxes. Whereas national insurance, once you get over £50,000, basically, you, you stop paying any extra national insurance at all, only 2p to the pound. Andrew Fisher, a former Corbyn advisor, in fact, former head of policy at the Labour Party, he put the significance of all this very well in a tweet today. He shared a Telegraph headline saying that Britain now has the highest tax rates since the Second World War. War. This is the big news line which has come out from this announcement from Boris Johnson. Fisher critiqued that headline, saying, This needs context. Some taxes like VAT are at record highs, and others have gone up sharply, e.g. council tax. But corporation tax was 52% when I was born. It's now 19%. That same year, the top rate of income tax was 83%. It's now 45%, and only for the top 1%. Who pays matters. And this is exactly right. We often talk about left-wing people, they want higher taxes, right-wing people, they want lower taxes. There is some truth to that. I mean, left-wing people tend to be committed um, to, to more spending on social programs. But the important thing that that papers over is that people with different politics support different taxes. What you will often see is people on the right, they want regressive taxes, taxes like VAT and national insurance. People on the left, they want progressive taxes, income tax, even a wealth tax. 
Now, one thing that's probably not talked enough about in politics in this country is how we have dramatically switched from taxes being progressive to regressive. We can take you through some of the taxes that Andrew Fisher mentioned and how they have changed over time. First is VAT, so value-added tax. This is a tax on purchases. Rich people and poor people say the same, pay the same rate, so it's currently 20%. And as poor people spend a higher proportion of their income than rich people do, obviously poor people can't afford to hoard it, it means that it will ultimately make a bigger dent in their incomes. We can see here VAT rates over time, and you can see how this regressive tax has increased over time. Before Thatcher came to power, VAT was 8%. In 1979, she hiked it to 15%. And then in 1991, John Major put it up to 17.5%. That stayed the same under New Labour until the financial crisis when Gordon Brown dropped it to 15%. And then George Osborne came in and hiked it to 20%. So why did that regressive tax get hiked? Why did they decide to dramatically increase VAT? Well, it was to pay for tax cuts for the rich and tax cuts for corporations. This is corporation tax over the last 25 years. So as you can see in 1995, there it's 33%. Under Tony Blair, it goes down to 30%, and under Brown to 28%. From 2010, the Tories gradually lower it all the way to 19%. We can go even further back to the 1980s, and the difference is more stark. So in the, uh, or before, in the early 1980s, before Thatcher started slashing it, corporation taxes were above 50%. Now let's look at income tax. This has shown a very, very similar pattern. So in 1945, the top rate of income tax was 98%. That drops to 89% in the 1950s under the Conservatives. Labour put it up to 98% in the late 1970s. You can see that both very high rates, this is the post-war consensus, both Labour and the Tories support high progressive tax. That all changes. You're probably seeing the pattern here, that all changes under Thatcher, when it more than halves to 40%. In the last 40 years, regressive taxes like VAT and national insurance have gone up. Progressive taxes like corporation tax and income tax have gone down. Dahlia, I want to get your thoughts on this. I don't usually spend too much time thinking about tax rates. It's quite a wonky topic. But looking at all of this this morning, I got pretty irate. Taxes used to be progressive. They're now regressive. This, to me, looks a bit like a scam. The scam is, I guess, neoliberalism itself. Like Neoliberalism is essentially a program of redistributing the wealth and risk of you know, economic activity from the already rich to sort of the ever expanding poor. You know, that phrase, privatize the gains and socialize the losses, that's not a popular phrase um, for no reason. It's because it really accurately describes how our economic system is designed and the tax system is part of that. But another way in which this is actually really classically neoliberal, it's once again an example of a moment of crisis being used to entrench neoliberalism in itself. You know, we all know that concept of the shock doctrine. And this is a perfect shock doctrine example in terms of the response to COVID-19. You know, we have a poorly managed pandemic that prioritizes the needs of, you know, the commercial and hospitality businesses over what is actually needed for public health. So, you know, that means 
the, the premature opening of bars and restaurants and um, clubs without adequate precautions. It also means, you know, vital services being outsourced to private companies that are schmoozy with the government who essentially hoard those government funds and then put out a substandard service. So then what happens as a result of that is we have these, we have to repeatedly go these very draconian strict lockdowns for longer periods of time. That results in overwhelming the NHS, overwhelming the care system, creating these immense backlogs, which, you know, I know that this is being marketed as a kind of social care levy, but actually the majority of the funds for the first few years, at least, are going to go towards filling up the backlogs um, created by these very re uh, restrictive lockdowns, which have happened increasingly because of mismanagement of the pandemic, which leads us to have to go to that last resort um, option. That then, so you have this backlog where people can't go into hospital to get their regular checkups, their, you know, their treatments. That is compounded by 10 years of neoliberal austerity, um, which is already pushing these system, these health and care systems to the brink. So that means the government can then declare a crisis of the NHS that means we need to have this significant financial injection. We all need to tighten our belts in order to fix that backlog created by the crisis. And that bailout, essentially, that financial injection becomes a way in which the government can entrench the policies that it has always been invested in under the guise of unforeseen crisis management. So in this case, it's about protecting the asset wealth of the rich um, whilst making working class people pay a disproportionately high cost for a crisis that they didn't create. So it is a scam, but it's actually not a new scam. Um, it's the logic that has always underpinned neoliberalism. Um, you know, and I think that it's a continuation, especially of the kinds of logics that we saw under, you know, post 2008 Tory austerity, which is a crisis has happened. It's come out of nowhere. We all need to get together and pinch our budgets and, you know, tighten our belts and all contribute what we need to contribute to when really we're all paying very, very differences for that crisis. And our public infrastructure, which we are supposed to be saving through these bailouts, are actually being gutted, essentially. Um, so then what we have and what we're going to see as a result of this is despite this being something that is meant to help our social care and healthcare infrastructures, what it's actually going to do is push people who can afford it into private alternatives as the public provision of services continues to not be at the standard that they should be. And then people who can't afford it, whose disposable income is going to be even more strapped by the increase in this tax, which will disproportionately affect them, are going to be pushed into increasingly predatory and exploitative systems of debt as they try to make up the money to top up from what are still going to be inadequate social care and public infrastructures. Um, so it's essentially the story of the broader scam of neoliberalism uh, just in a COVID-19 friendly package, essentially. I hope together we've both explained well why this increase to national insurance is, is not a particularly fair move. It's regressive compared to the other taxes that they could have increased, be that income tax or be that a wealth tax, be that corporation tax. Now, earlier in the week and on Monday, um, we were discussing the fact that even despite this, national insurance did seem pretty popular 
among, among the public. It was more popular than income tax. And many people thought this move by the Tory government was very fair. In fact, the Tories seemed pretty confident when polls suggested support for their plans to increase national insurance were popular. However, the tide of public opinion seems to be turning on this. Opinion research today um, shows the public now opposed the Tories' social care plans. Overall, the public opposed the social care plan by 45% to 33%. Now, Conservative voters do support it. This is the Tory policy, and also they are probably uh, potentially the people who are going to disproportionately benefit from it, older homeowners, Labour supporters massively against these social care plans. And perhaps unsurprisingly, there is also a very significant breakdown when it comes to age. 18 to 34 year olds, very, very against these plans. 55% think they're unfair. Only 29% think they're fair. Very similar figures there for people who are 35 to 54. And then it's only once you get to people above 55, we don't know where the cutoff point is because these are very broad categories, there is overall support. Although very tight, I don't think that's the kind of numbers the Conservative Party are going to be looking at and feeling especially reassured. You might be asking then, why do we have a government who is increasing regressive taxes instead of progressive ones? The public don't think they're particularly fair. They don't make much economic sense, given that we have terrible inequality in this country, and it's not particularly good for general economic indicators. It's better for poorer people to have disposable income because they're going to go out and spend money on the high streets. If you give tax breaks to the rich, they just sit on it. They just hoard it. Well, we almost did have a government who introduced hikes to progressive taxes instead of regressive ones. This is from the Labour Party's 2019 manifesto. We'll ask those who earn more than £80,000 a year to pay a little more income tax while freezing national insurance and income tax rates for everyone else. That to me looks like a sensible policy, but it led to some pretty wild responses at the time. Let's take a look at this infamous moment from Question Time during the 2019 election. I'd like to call out Labour as liars. I am one of them people that he will tax more and I am nowhere near in the top 5%. So I'm calling you a liar right now. That 5% is a lie, right? I am nowhere near that. And you are going to income tax me as an employee. You're not going after the billionaires, you're going after the employees where it's easy money because it's PAYE, I have no choice. That's just not, um, I'm afraid. On that, you're mistaken. We're not going to raise income tax for anybody apart from the top 5% of earners. I we're am not to, in the top 5% so of earners. So we're not going I, to increase I, your income tax? But you are, because I've read your policy. It's above £80,000. And I am nowhere near in the top 5%, let me tell you. I'm not even in the top 50%. And that's why we're not going to increase your income tax. And I... So hang on, let's just be clear. So, so you're, you're suggesting you would raise income tax on those earning over £80,000. You're saying that would affect you because you earn over that sum? Yes. So you earn over £80,000? Yes, and I'm not in the top 5%. Mm. It, that, I think that is the no, top I'm 5%, not. isn't it? I'm not. Every doctor in this country earns more than that. 
this. Every doctor, every account, every solicitor earns more than that. That's not 5%. I mean, it's not true that every solicitor in the country earns more than £80,000. When I was a solicitor, I earned just over £40,000 a year. The fact is, the fact is... So let's just be clear. Just let's settle this once and for all. Well, certainly let's hear from you. If you earn over £80,000, are you in the top 5% yeah. categorically? Yeah, so the, the top 5% of earners <laughs> will pay more income tax. And I think it's right. Top 5% I think and, and not even, don't even work because they're I, rich, right? So they don't even pay, in, the, they don't, they're not employees. The, the, the richest of all people uh, are the billionaires. A third of them, a third of the billionaires uh, donated to the Conservative Party. The other thing is we need to say the enemy of somebody who's on seventy or 8,000 pounds a year isn't someone on 20 or 25,000 pounds a year. The problem is, the problem is that a billionaire, for example, and we're told these people are wealth creators, the average wage in this country, on the average wage in this country, it would take 30,000 years of working the average wage in this country to get a billion pounds. And that would be if you didn't spend a single penny. The people getting away with murder, in reality, are the billionaires. And it's the billionaires that back the Conservative Party. That man in the audience speaking to Richard Bergen was wrong. He was categorically wrong. If he earns more than £80,000, he is in the top 5%. In fact, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, he's in the top 3% of earners in the UK population. Yet, when Labour put forward a policy to tax the rich instead of ta taxing disproportionately people on lower incomes, they were completely attacked and, and destroyed for it. Dahlia, why is the politics of tax in Britain so intensely out of step with reality? It's by that way, by design, you know, that the, the tax system is not here to do what we are told a tax system is there to do, which is to raise funds so that we can have public infrastructure that is widely accessible, that is high quality, and everyone pitches in according to, you know, what they have. But actually what the tax system that we have now is there to do, actually keep that wealth stagnant in the hands of the already rich while squeezing the poor of every single dime they have, causing them to either fall into poverty um, or to incur, you know, greater and greater um, amounts, of, um, amounts of debt. And that's all done while those very services and public infrastructures that we are told our taxes are going towards are essentially, you know, decreasing in quality um, and availability. Uh, but our tax and the way that our tax system does this is essentially by punishing those whose money comes from actually working and privileging those whose money comes from assets, inheritance, capital gains, dividends, which are sources of income um, or wealth that are taxed very, very lightly. Uh, it's basically class war in its most sort of classic sense, which, which has progressively come uh, with the neoliberalization um, of our economy. So this is kind of the latest um, stage in this. And we we have to understand that this really isn't about what makes financial sense. It's much more about architecting a particular system of power, politically, economically, uh, and socially. You know, if capital gains were taxed in the way that income is, we would raise 90 billion pounds of extra revenue over five years. This plan of the national insurance increase um, will raise £12 billion in one year. So that's £60 billion over five years. So this was truly actually about raising the funds that we need to salvage our social care system, which is a disgrace, 
in them and to raise those funds in the most a efficient effective and equitable way possible then we would be looking at a very different tax system and the way that you design a tax system to to do this is by is through shifting around what sources of taxes it uh, what sources of income and wealth are taxed um, the most so this is really about reproducing and intensifying existing inequalities it has nothing to do with actually resolving them and this is why we have this fracturing between you know what we are told taxes do what we are told our tax system should do and what it actually is being designed to do and that's why you know at the beginning of the show you talked about how this is, can be quite confusing because in general on the left we look at taxes and we're like that's a good thing because we are raising revenue to fund public infrastructures and it should be done in a way that is proportional to how much you have but by basically obfuscating what sources of income by moving around what sources of wealth are taxed you can actually have that do the opposite effect and obviously that that tax system is designed by by politicians so they are the ones that are primarily accountable but we also have to remember the role that is played by the media um here in obfuscating what a fair tax system would look like um you know over the past several decades we have had a huge amount of resources thrown into painting the very idea of taxing unearned wealth um of taxing the rich um as some kind of you know unacceptable you know unhinged concept and this brings to mind the sort of several years long work done by the taxpayers alliance which is a very small esoteric think tank that has one very clear ambition which is to lobby against any kind of um meaningful and effective tax increase that would affect the wealthiest people by creating this concept of the taxpayer which kind of in a similar way to like nationalism sort of binds people who have very 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 different material realities into this overarching identity that makes it seem like they are both they both have the same interests when actually they have very opposing interests so despite being a very small esoteric specific think tank with a very specific agenda it is relentlessly cited in the media as you know a neutral reputable organization that just represents taxpayers in general which can mean anything from you know me a you know who does precarious work who you know is is paying rent and is struggling to do so to people who you know don't have to pay as much tax as they should be on you know their multiple properties so you know in an example of that and that that is cited without that context so an example in 2009 the taxpayers alliance were used as a source 500 times in just one year in just one newspaper so that's more than once a day we can compare how the media essentially lost its mind when corbin proposed a tax system that was in touch with reality and was a fair representation of who should contribute what to the much more tempered reaction that we are seeing now that the media has had to this tax program which genuinely does impact working class people um the most and that is has happened at the end of a context that whereby when the left is seen to hold the tax system it is triggers a sense that you know this is this should be stigmatized this is problematic um but it's not about being against the concept of tax as a whole it's about being against certain political understandings of what tax is there to do and who it should affect so 
you know, we have the politicians who have designed this unfair tax system on the one hand, but we also have the media and the lobbying interests that have done a huge amount over many, many, many years to lead us to this position where we can have essentially what felt what feels like contradictory reactions to the introduction of this tax proposal versus Corbyn's, which was actually much more aligned to what everyday working class people um, experience. We've got some breaking news. I told you it wouldn't be particularly exciting, but uh, this, this this has passed um, Parliament. So the, these plans to raise national insurance to, to pay for social care has been passed by 319 to 248. So a majority of 71, which isn't too different from the Conservatives' majority. Let's go straight on to our next story. We've spoken a lot about how the Tories' plan for funding social care is unfair. But is there a silver lining? Is it worth paying an unfair tax if it solves the crisis facing social care? I'd say probably yes, it, it would do. The problem? This unfair tax does no such thing. Francis Ryan has a great piece in The Guardian about how Boris Johnson's plan does little to solve the actual problems facing care in this country. I really recommend you read it. We'll go through the key points now. One of the big problems um, she points out refers to how or pertains to how care is currently provided. On that, Ryan writes, the mass outsourcing of social care to the private sector in recent decades is in many ways the elephant in the room. There is no point increasing government funding if the money goes to lining the pockets of private equity magnates who own our care homes and services rather than improving care workers' wages or patients' care packages. Few could claim outsourcing brings good value or high standards. Last year, the Care Quality Commission found that one in six care providers in England were not meeting acceptable standards. It's time for a conversation about bringing more services in-house and expanding social care co-ops run by communities, and at the very least, some accountability on profits and waste. Now, this is a really important point. Many people think that social care is run in a similar way to the NHS. If you put more money into it, that will go to organisations who really care about care, you know, who, who aren't just seeking to cream off um, profit from, from looking after people or saying they're looking after people, right? If this is just going to big private equity firms, they're probably not the right recipients for all of this cash. And that's not to say the cash won't make some difference, but just to say this doesn't seem like the most sensible, the most efficient way to spend it. You can guess why um, the Tories aren't going to deal with that particular issue, though. Another issue Ryan addresses is staffing. She writes, More than 70% of care workers are currently paid less than the real living wage, and a quarter are on zero-hour contracts, meaning no sick pay if Johnson is to fix care shortages, care staff must be brought into parity with their NHS colleagues, paid the living wage, and given the right to a staff contract. Now, this is, is talked about quite a lot in, in the media, the fact that care workers are chronically underpaid. It's an incredibly difficult job, incredibly difficult job, and it's paid terribly. One of the worst paid jobs in the country, in fact, often at the minimum wage, nearly always, as Francis Ryan points out there, below the living wage on low conditions, poor opportunities for career advances or training or whatever. Now, there was nothing in Johnson's plan which he said, this is, this is the, the problem that for decades prime ministers have shirked. No plans 
as to how to make this a sector, an industry that people want to work for. Obviously, that's fair for these workers. It's also going to be good for the people who are receiving care. You will receive better care if you are receiving care from someone who is properly paid for the work they are doing. Other points raised by Francis Ryan in the piece were that Boris Johnson's plan makes no reference to disabled working age adults who require social care. Services to allow people to live independent lives were decimated by austerity, and this plan does nothing for them, nothing for them at all. Finally, Ryan points out that Boris Johnson's plan offers nothing for unpaid carers. She writes, Family carers, largely women, work around the clock and at £67 a week benefit receive less than the paltry sum given to job seekers, while many get nothing due to harsh qualifying criteria. Carers' allowance must be raised to lift carers out of poverty and outside help given for their physical and mental health. As I say, I recommend you go check out this, this article. Really important because this is definitely under-discussed in the mainstream media. How this is you know, it's being billed as this will solve the social care crisis, which everyone has agreed we've suffered for for so long. Actually, let's go through what constitutes the social care crisis point by point. And this doesn't resolve barely any of those problems. You know, some people might say this is conspiratorial of me, but I reckon... This is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that actually Boris Johnson's plan doesn't do anything to solve the actual crises facing social care. And I'd say it's not a coincidence because he doesn't care about the crisis facing social care. What this is, is it's being called a package to fix social care when all it is in reality is a package to support inheritances to the children of the Tories' core vote, paid for, as we've discussed, by the lowest wage workers. Yeah, I mean, this this isn't, a serious intervention in the care crisis. And I'm so glad that that article brought up the issue of unpaid care as well, because what we've seen is that especially in times of crisis, whether that is the crisis of austerity or it's the crisis of the pandemic or it's the crisis of climate breakdown, it's those unpaid carers that plug the gaps essentially at huge physical and emotional and psychological cost to themselves. But it's actually very difficult to overstate the scale of the care crisis in this country. Uh, part of my PhD research looks into this. I regularly interview care workers of all different kinds, and I look not only at the kinds of conditions that they're working in, but the kinds of conditions that their patients are living in because of, as you mentioned, the fact that what the workers are not funded enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough. Uh, there's so much crammed into their day. There's just not enough resources put to this. I can't, you know, explain to you like the horrors and and the acute actual danger. A lot of it is actually a health threat um, in the the conditions that some of the most you know vulnerable members of our communities are living in because they're not having their mental and physical care needs addressed. And this tax tax increase only takes more away from those who cannot afford to put their family members, to put their loved ones and eventually themselves into private social care. Um, it leaves those who already, you know, don't really care what the state of public social care is because they know they'll, they'll never have to rely on it. They know they'll always be able to provide, to pay a private provider um, of their choice it leaves that constituency relatively unscathed. It further cripples those who are going to have to rely on the public 
care infrastructure because they don't have the disposable income that means that they can put their relatives or their their loved ones into more resourced hands. Or in order to do that, they'll just incur deeper, more predatory forms of debt, which is its own sort of form of political and social and economic control. But it's also not, you know, a serious intervention in the care crisis because it's a drop in the ocean, essentially. And it doesn't go in to the real sources of wealth, which, you know, is not only things, as we've mentioned, like inheritance, capital gains tax, but also like the vast amounts of globally circulating wealth that is being offshored into tax haven islands, um, many of which are actually under British rule. So it doesn't meet the scale of the crisis and it doesn't even make a serious um, attempt to do so. But what this is, is essentially an insufficient attempt to look like the social care system in this country, which has long been understood to be, you know, in absolute dire straits. It makes it look like it is being attended to. And it even, you know, the marketing of it, it's going to appear in your payslip, uh, not as a national insurance contribution, but it's going to appear in your payslip as a social and healthcare levy. Uh, it's, so it's a way of creating this spectacle, creating this sense that something is being done about one of the most central crises affecting Britain today. But it's being done not only inadequately, but what is being done is off the backs of young, precarious people you know, when these funds could be raised by by much sort of fairer means. But this is essentially, and you've, you've gestured towards this, it's essentially a political calculation because it's another example of class warfare essentially being mediated through these generational um, divides. And it's being pursued in these ways because the Tories have made a calculation that young people are, to them, electorally expendable. You know, why? Because the fleeing of young people from deprived and abandoned towns that they grew up in into major cities, concentrating into very specific, you know, geographical boundaries means that the Tories can then just simply write these constituencies off and rely on the much more geographically dispersed older generation whose sources of wealth are much more likely um, to be untouched by this tax plan. But are more likely to actually be affected by the consequences of an underfunded social care system. The great sort of irony of this to me is that, you know, this is being introduced with the claim that it is triggered by the pandemic. You know, this is genuine concern for our social care system in the wake of a pandemic that has basically, you know, finished what austerity started and um, when it comes to decimating the social care system in this country. And that very pandemic showed us the human cost of having a fragile and underfunded social care system. But the lesson that has been taken is not that. It's in fact, instead, the government is using that pandemic to make social care into a political football. And, and those who lose are not only those who are being regressively taxed, but as you mentioned, the people who lose are the people who need a social care system that is funded adequately and sustainability, sustainably. And that's the great irony and the really sad thing about this entire thing. Um, let's go to our final story of the day. Britain's education secretary is no stranger to humiliating gaffes. But today we witnessed one that perhaps tops all others. And that's because this wasn't just a gaffe. It was a racist gaffe. The cock-up concerned the footballer Marcus 
Rashford. In an interview with the Evening Standard, Williamson was asked if he'd ever met the England striker. The Standard right. Many of Williamson's critics have been high profile, including Marcus Rashford, who called for an urgent review of free school meals. Has he met the footballer? Williamson said, We met over Zoom and he seemed incredibly engaged, compassionate and charming, but then he had to shoot off. I didn't want to be the one that was holding him back from his training. Now, on the face of it, that's quite a good answer. It makes Gavin Williamson sound very human. He engaged with Marcus Rashford, even though Marcus Rashford has been very critical of Gavin Williamson in the past. The problem, he didn't actually have a meeting with Marcus Rashford. The piece goes on. Later, Williamson's team tell me he actually met the rugby player, Maro Atoje, who campaigned to bridge the digital divide, not Rashford. Wow. Marcus Rashford is one of the most recognisable faces in this country. And if you're education secretary, he should be especially recognisable because he's constantly speaking on issues which pertain to your job. Yet Gavin Williamson spent a whole Zoom call talking to another black sports person thinking he was Marcus Rashford. Dahlia, do these two men look alike to you? Categorically, obviously no. But I'm also... I feel like I can't really come down too hard because my own father regularly mistakes Afwa Hirsch for me on the TV. So maybe it's not my place. But not after to an, not after an hour's this was they'd had a conversation on Zoom, right? So this is I mean, like my dad also this is like your dad was like, me. I spoke to Afwa Hirsch this morning, and you're like, No, that was me, Dad. But, I mean, obviously, I'm being facetious. This is actually embarrassingly common um, in media and political circles, and and it makes me think of Ash and Pfizer. Um, being regularly mistaken for one another. It makes me think of one time when I was actually in a green room uh, and someone that everyone here will know who will go unnamed decided to tell me that she thought I looked like Cardi B, which part of me is flattered, but also part of me is also like, wow, this tells us a lot about the perspective of people who make these decisions. And it's not like, this isn't like the sharpest end of racism. Like we can kind of make a joke out of it, but it does basically show the double bind that people of color in this country are, which is that you are very hyper visible, you know, and you know, you are sort of, you feel like you are sort of under scrutiny, you're under surveillance, that you have to watch what you do all the time. And yet you are somehow at the same time, totally invisible. Your achievements, your individuality, who you are is like constantly overlooked. It's constantly invisible. It's constantly sort of, just it feels like it's just going over the the head of the people who empower and this isn't just like the point it's not just like a, a mistake and that's not the point the point is is that this is happening amongst the this is the the attitude and the kind of the lack of recognition is from people who are making are at the highest level of decision making in media and politics that has like a knock-on effect and the fact that it feels like the people who are making those those decisions that have knock-on effects on our culture, on our politics, see us but don't really see us is something that is quite viscerally felt. Um, and I would say that, you know, that is actually something that is quite consistently felt, obviously most significantly in Tory media and Tory politics, but actually pretty much across the spectrum. And any person of colour in Britain will tell you basically, that something like this has happened um, to them. I mean, what I 
I mean, as you say, you know, mistaking people of of color is is something which is incredibly racially charged, which happens all too often. This story just has another element, though, which is like, you know, he he was in a meeting with this guy, right? And also, Marcus Rashford should be someone who is really, really known to the education secretary. Like, I would assume that Gavin Williamson is really worried about Marcus Rashford because he's constantly coming out with these interventions that make Gavin Williamson look terrible. And Gavin Williamson's like, oh, it's that Marcus Rashford guy, that guy who I had that Zoom call with, um, who who was very nice to me, right? That, it, just, it, it, it just seems like, what the hell is this guy thinking? What is he doing? Like, how, how unintelligent is he, to be honest? Like, to be frank, like... Wow. Like, it, it, you know, it's rude if you mistake two people who you've passed in the pub or, you know, if I'm going to put myself in, in the, the Tory party's shoes who I've sort of met at the spectator dinner party, but who I've had like an important meeting with about resources for kids and who is also, you know, one of the most prominent celebrities and campaigners on that issue. To think you've had a meeting with a different person, just it's wild to me. We can look at the responses from um, the players himself, Marcus Rashford. Um, responded to a tweet talking about this mix-up by saying accent could have been a giveaway. Um, Marcus Rashford is from Manchester. Itoje is from London. Um, there was also a response from Itoje. Due to recent speculation, I thought it was necessary to confirm that I am not Marcus Rashford. And whilst we are here, my name is not Mario either. Just a simple Mauro Itoje will do. Much love, Marco I mean, Maro Atoje. Dahlia, do you think there'll be political consequences for this? I mean, Gavin Williamson, it's, it's widely speculated that there is going to be a reshuffle soon and he is you know, tipped more than anyone to lose his job. As I say, this isn't just, this isn't just any old mix-up with racist mm. undertones. This is like, it's hard to believe that this has happened. Yeah, it's, it's you're not doing your job, right? You're not, and whether that's, you know, being somewhat alert in meetings uh, or being not racist or you know being aware of the cultural moment that is happening around your your role which is you know Marcus Rashford is at, Marcus Rashford is our prime minister remember like he is the <laughs> one who is at, especially when it comes to education when it comes to you know young people is like one of the most vocal not only critics of the government, but one of the most respected voices. And the fact that as the education minister, you are so tuned out of it that you could be talking to a completely different person for a whole hour and think and not even, and, you know, get people, get the identities confused. It just goes to show the kind of totally cavalier and disrespectful way in which politicians like Gavin Williamson approach the responsibilities that they are given. And that comes from a really deep sense in someone like Gavin Williamson, that even if, he is, you know, reshuffled out of his role of education as education minister. His political power, his economic power, his social power is ultimately going to be untouched. It's just going to be kind of metabolized into a different form, whether that's, you know, continuing to be a Tory MP and, you know, which is a really like powerful role or whether it's, you know, going through the revolving door between highly lucrative, highly powerful uh, positions in business and industry that exists between you know that sector and and our political sector. So he might be at risk, but I think the cavalier and the sort of the like lack of interest comes from essentially just knowing that he will be fine always, which is not what we can say for 
the, all those young people that are, you know, under his jurisdiction. I mean, Gavin Williamson, if, if after he gets fired, he goes on to work in a very, very well-paid lobbying job, that will be the ultimate example of the revolving door, right? Because this is someone who clearly failed in every aspect of his job, okay. clearly is not a particularly talented person, but just because he was in the cabinet in, in two very significant roles, actually, he was defense secretary before he was education secretary, he can presumably, I don't know, I, I wouldn't hire him even if I was, you know, a, a very powerful boss at a lobbying firm, but... I imagine someone probably will, as you say. Yeah. Well, being able to fail up is sort of part of the social contract between like political power and economic business power. So I would be more surprised if it didn't happen. And he's, excel he's excelled at that, if that's what you're <laughs> looking for. Um, we're going to wrap up there, Dahlia Gabriel. A pleasure as always. Lovely to see you. I missed you. I know it's, it's been, been a while, while, hasn't it? It's lovely to have yeah, you back. No, <laughs> no I'm, I'm, I'll be back for a while now. <laughs> Amazing. I'm back in the studio at some point, I'm sure soon. Thank you, everyone, for your comments and Super Chats tonight. If you want to support us directly, then do please go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. Um, for now, we'll be back on Friday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.